Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOCS program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday, 12 noon, without fail, to promote and to protect public education. And uh, we usually have a press release, but we haven't this week because Trevor Cobald uh, at Save Our Schools has been extra specially busy and he's got two. Uh, so we're going to tell you what he's up to. And uh, he's up to the Labor Party's choosing taxation cuts before disadvantaged students. And um, he's also got a very interesting press release about vouchers. Uh, and Bridge is going to tell us something about that. We've got um, the poor private schools, we're told, are under pressure as luxuries, first to go in tough times. How many swimming pools have gone, I wonder? Well, we do know that the international school has gone, but that is a one long-standing scandal. Very interesting indeed. Uh, as well as that, the private schools have been out and about getting as much money as they can for disability funding, which means once again, the disadvantaged children in our public schools miss out. And Jeff's been off to America with Diane Ravitch and he's got some interesting material for us. And then of course, we always have our great state school. But let's get on with the program. Oliver and Kim are going to tell us about Trevor Cobalt's Labor chooses tax cuts for the rich over better funding for disadvantaged schools. Over to you, Oliver. Thank you, Jean. Trevor Cobalt writes, the Prime Minister has chosen to deliver Scott Morrison's billions in tax cuts for the rich, while disadvantaged schools remain massively underfunded. New research shows that the PM should think again. Tax cuts are a complete waste. Fully funding disadvantaged schools will do more for economic growth than tax cuts for the rich. Before the election, Anthony Albanese made it clear a Labor government would deliver Morrison's unfair stage three tax cuts. We have no intention to change any of those policies, he said. He has just been as emphatic in statements since the election. Analysis conducted by the Parliamentary Budget Office, PBO, shows that the stage three tax cuts will cost $184.2 billion over 2024 to 25 to 2031 to 32. It recently revised this estimate to 206.6 billion. The original estimates revealed that the top 20% of income earners would receive a tax cut of 138.2 billion. That is, they will receive 75% of the total benefit of the tax cuts. Those with a taxable income of $180,000 or more will get 83.2 billion. The top 1% of income earners with taxable incomes over 309,000 in 2021 to 22, will get a tax cut worth 11.8 billion. This is a massive windfall for the richest people in Australia. The Australian Taxation Office statistics show that only 3% of taxpayers had a taxable income of 180,000 or more in 2017 to 18. Only 142,882 people were in the top 1% of taxpayers in 2017 to 18. The common justification for tax cuts for the rich is that it will boost economic growth. It's an illusion as many studies have shown. All they do is increase incomes of the rich and increase income inequality and all the costs that brings to society. A recent study of all major reductions in taxes for the rich across 18 OECD countries 
from 1965 to 2015 found that they increased income inequality. The tax cuts did not increase economic growth or reduce unemployment. The study included the Reagan and Thatcher tax cuts and cuts to the top marginal rates in Australia in 1987. It concluded, our findings on the effect of growth and unemployment provide evidence against supply side theories that suggest lower taxes on the rich will induce labor supply responses from high income individuals, more hours of work, more effort, et cetera, that boost economic activity. Overall, our analysis finds strong evidence that cutting taxes on the rich increases income inequality, but has no effect on growth or unemployment. Another recent study analyzed the impact of reductions in tax rates on high income earners in Australia. In 1987, New Zealand in 1989, and Norway in 1992. It found that the income share of the top percentile increased by between 20 and 50% in three countries and share the top of the 0.1 percentile increased by 50 and 100%. The tax reductions had no significant impact on economic output or other economic efficiency indicators. These results add to the top finding of many other studies that lower taxes on the rich, especially top marginal income tax rates, are strongly associated with a rising share of income going to top income earners. This is clearly demonstrated in the pioneering work of the French economist Thomas Piketty, who has plotted the course of top incomes and inequality in many, many countries over the 20th century. And now Kimberly will read us a bit more. Thanks, Oliver. The Labor government's insistence on going ahead with the tax cuts will deliver a windfall gain of $138 billion over eight years to the top 20% of income earners with no prospect of any economic gain. The stage three tax cuts are simply a massive redistribution of income to the rich that would be better spent on healthcare, aged care, the NDIS and public education, all of which face a funding crisis. In the case of education, it could be used to increase the proportion of disadvantaged students who complete year 12 or its equivalent and achieve national benchmarks in literacy and numeracy. It could also be used to reduce the vast achievement gap between rich and poor. Apart from improving the life chances of these students and increasing equity in education, it would also boost economic outcomes, something which the tax cuts will not achieve as recent studies show. The report on government services in 2022 shows that nearly 30% of low socioeconomic status, SES, students did not complete year 12 in 2021. The most recent Closing the Gap report shows that 34% of Indigenous adults aged 20 to 24 had not attained year 12 or its equivalent in 20, 2018 to 19. The 2021 NAP plan report shows that nearly 20% of year nine students of low education parents did not achieve the national reading and numeracy benchmarks, and 40% did not achieve the writing benchmark. One third of Indigenous students did not achieve the reading benchmark, 20% did not achieve the numeracy benchmark, and nearly 50% did not achieve the writing benchmark. In addition, there are large attainment and achievement gaps between advantaged and disadvantaged students. Only 72% of low SES students completed year 12 in 2021. Year nine students of low educated parents are over four years behind students of high educated parents in reading, writing and numeracy. Indigenous students are about five years behind. <clears throat> 
the large majority of disadvantaged students attend public schools. Estimated derived from the report on government services 2022 shows that 82% of low SES students, 83% of indigenous students, 82% of remote area students were enrolled in public schools in 2021. The proportions are similar in every state and territory. Moreover, 98% of all disadvantaged schools are public schools based on figures published by the Australian Council of Education Research. Other research shows that over 90% of disadvantaged schools are public schools. Despite these learning challenges faced by public schools, government funding for private schools increased by four times that for public schools between 2009 and 2019. Combined Commonwealth and state funding adjusted for inflation for Catholic and independent schools increased by $1,919 and $1,893 respectively per student. In contrast, funding for public schools increased by a mere $469 per student. At present, public schools are massively underfunded to meet their challenges and will remain so indefinitely under current arrangements. This year, public schools in all states and territories except the ACT are funded at less than 90% of their schooling resource standard. The average level of funding is 87%. In contrast, private schools who serve only a small minority of disadvantaged students are already funded at over 100% of their SRS in all states and territories except the Northern Territory. The average level of funding is 104.2% of their SRS. By 2029, public schools in all states except the ACT will be funded at 91% or less of their SRS. There is no plan to get public schools to 100% of their SRS. Under current arrangements, public schools will be underfunded indefinitely. In contrast, private schools in all states except the Northern Territory will be funded at 100% or more of their SRS. The cumulative underfunding of public schools for the years 2022 to 2029 inclusive will amount to about $53 billion while private schools will be overfunded by about $5.3 billion. Despite large numbers of the school students not achieving expected levels of achievement, the large achievement gaps between rich and poor and the massive underfunding of public schools, the new Labor government continues its pre-election silence on how it will address the funding crisis in public schools. All we know is that the overfunding of private schools is the, and the billions in tax cut for the rich will not be touched. Privilege is sacrosanct. Public education hardly rated a mention in the Governor-General's presentation of the government's policy agenda at the opening of the new session of Parliament. Although the government will promise public schools is that they will be on the path of full and fair funding. This is not enough. The government must increase its role in funding public education. The arbitrary limit applied by the coalition government must be removed. The Commonwealth should fund public schools at more than 20% of their SRS to fulfil its key role in ensuring national equity in education. The Commonwealth state bilateral funding agreements must be renegotiated to ensure that public schools are funded at 100% of their SRS within the next five years. It must ensure that the states fulfil their responsibilities for public schools and increase their funding share. The new agreement must also end the skullduggery in the current agreement that allows the states to artificially boost their funding share by counting expenditures not included in the measure of the SRS. This skullduggery is defrauding public schools of about $2 billion a year. The Albanese government logically cannot use the budget deficit as a reason not to promptly increase its funding of public schools and other human services while it wastes billions on tax cuts for the rich. It could use part of the billions being wasted on tax cuts for the rich. 
it could also reduce the overfunding of private schools. If Labor refuses to act, it will be seen as yet another government co-towing to the rich and powerful. By refusing to wind back the tax cuts, the government is putting the future funding of public schools and disadvantaged students at risk. The Minister for Education cannot prevaricate any longer. He must enunciate a clear policy and timetable to redress the underfunding of public schools. Labor's path to full and fair funding cannot be a never-ending path. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you very much. Trevor Cobalt's in fine form, isn't he? And it really is ridiculous that the rich should get the tax cuts. Uh, it seems that we really don't have a Labor Party anymore. Well, not the Labor Party that we used to know. Uh, I think things went bad myself round about uh, 1980s with Bob Hawke. But um, uh, that's uh, history, I suppose. Uh, we'll have a bit of a break now and come back for what Trevor Cobalt has also put on his website. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to scream out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. Yes, well, uh, you're still listening to the Dogs Program and we've got some more of Trevor Cobalt from Save Our Schools for you. And Bridget's going to tell us about a voucher advocate who's recanted. Uh, this person thought the vouchers were terrific but uh, has changed their mind. Over to you, Bridget. Thank you, Jean. Now, this is um, by Trevor Colbolt. This is Voucher Advocate Recants. Vouchers are dangerous. In a welcome display of intellectual honesty, a leading US advocate of school vouchers has recanted. In a daring indictment, Professor Joshua Cohen now says that vouchers are dangerous and they fail to deliver for the kids who are often most in need. He says that the evidence is just too stark to justify the use of public money to fund private tuition. In an opinion piece in the US education website, the Heckinger Report, Professor Cohen unequivocally stated that voucher programs have failed in the United States. They promise an all too simple solution to tough problems like unequal access to high quality schools, segregation, and even school safety. In small doses years ago, vouchers seemed like they might work. But as more states have created more and larger voucher programs, experts like me, Trevor Cobalt, have learned enough to say that these programs on balance can severely hinder academic growth, especially for vulnerable kids. Not only have voucher programs failed to deliver, but Cohen says there is a moral case against them as well. They promise low-income families solutions to academic inequality, but what they deliver is often little more than religious indoctrination to go alongside academic outcomes that are worse than before. This is a major rebuff to voucher advocates around the world and in Australia, as Cohen is a highly influential academic. He has studied voucher programs in the US for almost 20 years and initially was optimistic about their success. Voucher programs operate in many US states under which governments provide funding for students to attend a private school. Funding that would otherwise be used by a public school district is allocated to a participating family in the form of a voucher 
to pay partial or full tuition fees to attend a private school, including both religious and non-religious schools. The amount of funding is typically based on the state's per student funding for public schools. Many programs are directed at low income and black families. Cohen's judgment is based on evaluation studies of major voucher programs in the US. He, has, he was lead author of an official evaluation of the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program, also known as MPCP in Wisconsin, published in 2013. The evaluation tracked more than 2,500 voucher children alongside 2,500 carefully matched public school children. It concluded that the students exposed to MPCP did no better on those exams than students in traditional public schools. Several studies of the Louisiana voucher program found that students performed worse in private schools than in public schools. For example, a study published by the US National Bureau of Economic Research found that voucher students performed much worse in reading, maths, science, and social studies than similar students who remained in public schools. These results were replicated in other studies such as those published in the Educational Evaluation and Policy Analysis Journal and more recently in the Journal of Research on Educational Effectiveness. A study of the impact of the Indiana Choice Scholarship Program on student achievement for low-income students who used a voucher to transfer from public to private schools found that they achieved less in maths regardless of the time spent in private school and there was no statistically meaningful effects in English or arts. It concluded, although school vouchers aim to provide greater educational opportunities for students, the goal of improving the academic performance of low-income students who use a voucher to move to a private school has not yet been realized in Indiana. Similar results were found by a study of Ohio's EdChoice Scholarship Program. The students who used vouchers to attend private schools fared considerably worse on state exams compared to their closely matched peers remaining on public schools. Our conclusion is that participation in the EdChoice program likely reduced students' reading and mathematics scores relative to what would have occurred in the public sector. In all of these programs, students from low-income families were fully funded by government to attend a private school of choice. The evidence that they failed to increase student achievement is compelling. As Cohen states, the bottom line is that the research case for vouchers doesn't hold up to scrutiny, while the research case against them has been flashing warning lights for almost a decade. Cohen's conclusion is supported by a recent literature review published in the Journal of Economic Literature. It found that the evidence about small-scale programs in high-income countries is not consistent or robust, and it is frequently the case that no significant impact is found. In the case of large-scale programs, it noted some discouragingly large negative achievement effects. Overall, it found that the evidence does not make a case for wholesale adoption of vouchers. Australia has a quasi-voucher system whereby private schools are partially funded by the Commonwealth Government according to a measure of the capacity of families to pay for private school fees and to a lesser extent by state and territory governments. In contrast to US voucher schemes, the money is provided directly to schools or systems rather than to families. Quasi-vouchers have proved no more successful in raising student results in Australia than voucher programs in the US. Many studies have shown that private schools do not do any better than public schools after taking account of their different social com composition despite their large research resource advantage over public schools. The report on Australia's results in the OECD's Program for International Student Assessment, PISA, in 2018, found no difference in student results in 
reading and science between public, Catholic and independent schools after taking account differences in student and social economic backgrounds. Public school students achieved higher results in mathematics than Catholic school students. A review of nearly 30 academic studies of public and private school outcomes in Australia shows that the vast weight of evidence is that public schools achieve similar outcomes to private schools. Many have advocated US-style vouchers for Australia over the years, whether universally available or means-tested. They include Turnbull Government Education Minister Simon Birmingham, Liberal Senator James Patterson, the Centre for Independent Studies, the Institute for Public Affairs and Independent Schools Victoria. Submissions to Gonski Review of, in 2011. Others want to extend the quasi-voucher arrangements to full funding of private schools, conditional on them not charging fees. It is nonsensical to use vouchers or quasi-vouchers to entice low-income and other disadvantaged students into private schools. At best, they will do no better than in public school, but they are also likely to do worse. Australia advocates of Australian advocates of vouchers should have the intellectual courage to follow the example of Professor Cohen, recant and adopt his admonition. Vouchers are dangerous for education. In Australia, quasi-vouchers have diverted funding from where it is most needed. Over to you, Jean. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, there's a guy that you often see writing to the papers. His name is Chris Curtis, and he is forever pushing the voucher system. And if you really, if you really look into Chris Curtis, you'll find that he... He was once very much associated with the old DLP, but um, it, is, it, it is a way of almost fully funding uh, private religious schools. And we've seen what has already happened in Australia because of the funding of private schools and the diversion of funds away from the public system. But fortunately, we still have a public system and we are here fighting for it. But we'll have a bit of a, a bit of a break now. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Well, you're listening to the Dogs Program still, I hope, and uh, we're now going to go and find out a little bit more about these four private schools and how they're coping with the lack of international students and uh, the, the luxuries that some of the parents have got to give up. Um, the article by Adam Watt, who is a former principal, um, is a very interesting one because he starts off talking about the Kilmore School that we dealt with last week. Yes, uh, there's been a lot of interest in this school. Um, there was a whistleblower who reported uh, what was going on to the uh, ASIC, and um, there have been allegations, uh, very serious allegations if you look at them, uh, that uh, the gentleman and his wife, who have had a lot to do with this school, have in fact um, uh, been setting up various companies and um, they have done very well out of the whole business. But meanwhile, the school itself 
in administration and teachers and without jobs and students are left hanging. But uh, let's hear more about this uh, from uh, <clears throat> Dale and Kim. Thanks, Jean. Uh, this article is actually titled Private Schools Under Pressure as Luxury is the First to Go in Tough Times. The sudden closure of the Colmont School in Melbourne's north sent an understandable shockwave through the devastated community. It would be genuinely heartbreaking for students and parents to so instantly be separated from peers and teachers with whom they had long-standing relationships. For the teachers, who try so hard in all locations and sectors, they'd also be bereft. It's little wonder there were tears. But you know what? Those teachers will get new jobs and the kids will also get over it. They really will. Each student's parents had sufficient disposable income to pay the school's not so significant fees. And this gives a strong indication that they're already kids who enjoy most of the socioeconomic and educational advantages that life can provide. The ripple effect of such a closure on the Victorian private school system might take longer to recover from, though. It's easy to wave away the Colmont lesson as an isolated case of convoluted business model colliding with a handful of poorly considered government's decisions. But more instructional might be wondering if Colmont was a canary in the coal mine for a private school sector clearly facing one of the biggest double whammies in its recent history. Whammy number one is coming from the market that is us parents. Times are tough and they're getting tougher when the grocery bills, the mortgage payments, the prices at the fuel pump and the cost of heating the home skyrocket, something's got to give. More from Dale. Thanks, Kim. Yes, the criteria for what gets squeezed from the family budget is chiefly luxuries and excesses that don't really provide a, tangi a tangible family benefit. Uh, perhaps they'd eat toasties in front of the footy on Friday night instead of a $28 order of golden beef from the local Chinese takeaway. Or perhaps it's an instant coffee in the morning instead of a $7 oat latte from the local barista complete with swan crafted into the froth. Or perhaps it's doing a little research on the genuine benefit of tithing a handy chunk of our weekly income to a faith-based school whose faith many parents don't even practice or really share. Victorian parents are drenched in the guilt so heavily marketed at them about how they're doing their children harm by not paying to send them to the school advertising their privilege on Eastlink. What if they discover the truth about the supposed educational gains made by paying all that money and they don't find a lot of return? What if they discover that by multiple measures, our government schools clearly outperform their fee-clawing counterparts? I feel for our private and independent school leaders. They found themselves on a fiercely competitive playing field and are forced to spend spiralling amounts of parent and taxpayer-provided funds on marketing and facilities, not on education each year. And it's not why they got into teaching, but that's not where the pain ends either. The second whammy private schools are facing could well come from the new federal government. Despite including education policy in its own small target approach to the election campaign, the Albanese government won't be able to hide from its commitments to fair and needs-based funding for long. The current funding agreement, which Labor has chosen not to challenge, ends next year. Education unions, teachers and families invested in government schools will be watching closely. 
They'll be looking for puffed up, statistically overfunded private schools, such as the obscenely wealthy Essendon Grammar, overfunded by 23 million, Haleybury, 22 million, and Ivanhoe Grammar, 10 million, to be brought back to the pack. Of course, as it is when petrol bite prices bite, the Porsche drivers aren't the ones who'll be hit the hardest, and I expect very few of the aforementioned schools to experience an enrolment crisis. It'll be the schools you've probably never heard of, whose parents are working two jobs to sustain this low-return life choice that we can predict to be leaving the low, lower fee-charging private options. These potential new additions to government schooling alongside the existing public education enlistees will be looking for their own schools to be funded at at least the school resourcing standard that the former Morrison government set and then chose to forget for a decade. And if Jason Clare really does choose meaningful education reform as the hallmark of his time in this portfolio, the pain of less money for private schools to spend on billboards, orchestra pits and Olympic-sized swimming pools is coming. Reform of a transparent nature where funds will, will be allocated to schools based on need and potential for improvement rather than by the school's glittering alumni of government ministers or their proximity to a marginal electorate is a significant threat to the private school sector. I expect that those with the biggest stake in this fight won't cop it quietly. But I also suspect that we haven't heard the last sad Colmont School story either. Well, thank you, Kimberly and Jao. Uh, we'll have a bit of a break and then we'll come back to hear Jeff. He's off to America and he's got some other interesting material too. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program, I hope, and now it's Jeff's turn to tell you about all the research he's been doing. Over to you, Jeff. Yeah, thanks, Jean. And this one's back to, this is from June 27th, and it's from the Americans United for Separation of Church and State and their um, online postings. Um, the press officer there is uh, a lady by the name of Liz Hayes, and she's published this article, which is Americans United, the Supreme Court ruling is the greatest loss of religious freedom in generations. Um, and this is something that's starting to creep in here too, where they're starting to use uh, weasel words basically to get religions to um be to allow prayer and things like that in schools so let's let's go into it it says the, Europe, the u.s supreme court today gutted decades of established law that protected students religious freedom undermining our country's foundational principle of church state separation in the landmark kennedy versus bremerton school district case the court ruled six three we know which six and we know which three against the Bremerton School District, which was trying to protect public high school students from a coach who violated their religious freedom by pressuring them to join his public prayers at the 50-yard line at public high school football games. Rachel Laser, President and CEO of Americans United for Separation of Church and State, which represents the school district, issued the following statement. Today, the court continued its assault on church-state separation by falsely describing coercive prayer 
as personal and stopping public schools from protecting their students' religious freedom, it is no coincidence that the erosion of the line between church and state has come alongside, alongside devastating losses on so many of the rights we cherish. As that light has, line has blurred, public education, reproductive rights, civil rights and more have come under attack. This decision represents the greatest loss of religious freedom in our country in generations. This court focused only on the demands of far-right Christian extremists robbing everyone else of their religious freedom. It ignored the religious freedom of students and families. As the network of religious extremists and the political allies behind this case celebrate victory, we can expect them to try, and ex try to expand this dangerous precedent, further undermining everyone's rights to live as ourselves and believe as we choose. Americans who value freedom and equality, especially for public school students, must rededicate themselves to re-establishing the separation of church and state across the United States. The Bremerton School District issued the following statement. The Bremerton School District's priorities have always been protecting the rights and safety of students while ensuring that they receive an exemplary education. That's why when we learned that a district employee was leading students in prayer, we followed the law and acted to protect the religious freedom of all students and their families. In light of the court's decision, we will work with our attorneys to make certain that the Bremerton School District remains a welcoming, inclusive environment for all students, their families and our staff. We look forward to moving past the distraction of this seven-year legal battle so that our school community can focus on what matters most, providing our children the best education possible. Laser said this devastating decision was only one of among a series of recent Supreme Court cases that have resulted in setbacks for individual rights, such as reproductive freedom, LGBTQIA equality in voting rights. In Dobbs versus Jackson, women's health organization, the Supreme Court abolished the constitutional right to abortion. And in Carson versus Macken, the court forced taxpayers to fund religious education. Laser promised that Americans United will continue to defend and protect religious freedom, which is inextricably tied to our other personal liberties by fighting in the courts, legislatures and the public square for freedom without favour and equality without exception. Um, and that's a great article. And it really highlights the slipping, uh, the slippery slope that we find ourselves on as uh, public education and principles of separation of church and state are eroded. Uh, more funding is going from the public purse into the hands of the religious uh, organisations running education. And uh, this is something the dogs definitely stand against. Anyway, uh, back to you, Jean. Well, uh, the religious people in America and the religious people in Australia have got something in common. Uh, unfortunately, instead of uh, thinking about what Christianity is really about, a lot of these people are interested in power and money. Well, here in Australia, they've got plenty of money. And even though uh, there's a lot of homeless people and people who've been trying very hard to get into the property market, guess who's been buying up houses? Over to you, Jeff. Thanks, Jean. And here we are again with the um, private schools going crazy, buying up uh, and spending all their money. Now, this is an article by Lucy Macon in the Sydney Morning Herald in the Domain section from August 6th. And um, it says, Sydney private schools go on $100 million buying bonanza. 
uh, says, she goes on, some of Sydney's most expensive private schools have emerged as the most prolific home buyers in the post-pandemic property boom as the schools look to the next-door neighbours' homes to meet their expansion plans. Landlocked schools, ASCAM and SCEGGS Darlinghurst, Darlinghurst in the eastern suburbs, in Newington, Merrington, Meriden and Christian Brothers High School in the inner west have clocked up close to $20 million worth of residential real estate purchases between them in the first six months of this year alone. And at the heart of the city's property boom last year, when the median house price soared more than 33%, schools like Queenwood, Pittwater House, Emmanuel School and Barker College forked out more than $56 million on property. On top of that, Sydney's Catholic schools has bought nine houses in the past 18 months, adjoining primary schools in Botany, Arncliff, Bexley, Lernia, Auburn, Concord West, Strathfield and Reesby at a, close, at a cost of $24 million. Of the almost $100 million worth of property purchases in the past 18 months, the vast majority are houses on the school boundary to be land banked for future use. Space limitations have been a challenge for longer established independent schools in the inner suburbs of Sydney for some time, said the head of the Association of Independent Schools in New South Wales, Dr Jeff Newcomb. Dr Newcomb said, sound forward planning before, therefore dictates that growing schools must purchase adjoining properties when they come up for sale and pay the market rate. Even at market rate, the cost of buying up the neighbours isn't cheap for schools like Ashcam in Darling Point, where the median house price is $4.2 million. Despite that, ASCAM has been on an acquisition spree. In the six months to March, uh, records show the school paid $18.24 million to buy five of six apartments in the Art Deco block next door, leaving one apartment outstanding. Of a row of three retail outlets from, uh, that front the school to the New South Head Road, one was purchased in 2019 and another last year for $5.25 million, leaving the third in the hands of Hong Kong's Ho family. When you list a house that's near a school and the first buyer you take it to is the school, said Alexander Phillips of PPD, who last year sold a Victorian Italian mansion called Villa Palmira for $5.25 million to St Catharines in Waverley. A spokeswoman for St Catharines said they're still considering what to do with the grand 1888 built residence, but purchased it because the land is limited and buildings close by are useful for non-teaching purposes like administration and uniform shops. Phillips said St Catharines paid market value for Villa Palmyra, but the schools often end up paying over. Lewisham's recent sale of a freestanding house at 650 square metres for $4.2 million shocked local property watchers until settlement revealed the buyer was Christian Brothers trustees of, of Edmund Rice Education Australia. Nothing is sold for more than $4 million in Lewisham outside Grand Victorian, Victorian homes on the boulevard, said Shad Hassan, directory, director of the agency in Inner West. People who own next door to these sorts of schools usually know what they've got and are hanging out for these sorts of deals. A pink corner terrace in Darlinghurst was recently bought by one of the state's most expensive schools, uh, Skeggs Darlinghurst, for $2.925 million for use as a wellbeing hub and to accommodate school counsellors. Head of school Jenny Allen announced the purchase in the June school newsletter. As a property with an entrance and driveway in St Peter's Street, we have long considered this one of the most strategic properties around us. In Mossman, Queenwood, 
forked out $8.4 million to buy a period house next door to its Balmoral beach grounds. And Mosman Preparatory bought a Federation house for $4.4 million, funded in part by the sale of a house two doors up for $3.21 million. Barker College, a co-educational Anglican school set on 15 hectares on the Upper North Shore, bought two retail spaces next door for $3.63 million and $2.5 million. There are no current plans to use the properties recently acquired for teaching, said the head of Barker College, Philip Heath, although one is being considered as a space for staff. Newington College's Stanmore campus is set on 10 hectares in the inner west, a footprint that has been increasing since the mid-1990s when the school started amassing 15 of the 19 homes that back onto it in Middleton Street, of which the most recent was a rundown bungalow in April for $2.175 million. But it isn't just Sydney's most expensive schools looking to expand. Muslim co-educational school as El Sadiq, where school fees start at $2,400, recently bought a three-bedroom weatherboard house for $1.25 million adjoining its Greenacre campus. And the Bankstown campus of Islamic Al-Amana College has bought five of its neighbouring properties in the last decade, of which the most recent was a block of land for $1.5 million. Hopes are already high that Al-Amana will add a sixth to its parcel on August 20th, when a four-bedroom house next door goes to auction with a $1.1 million guide, given Pace Properties' Luke McFadgen said the school had already flagged its interest. So there seems to be a, a bit of a, a race up in Sydney and probably in Melbourne too for these colleges to just accumulate property. Um, of course, you know, should those properties bring in a rental and bring in a nice income as well as long-term land banking, uh, as well in the potential that they might be used in the future for some, some sort of uh, uh, expansion? Isn't it nice to have those options, uh, given a large number of amount of their money is coming from the taxpayer? Anyway, back to you, Jean. Yes, well, that was all very interesting. Thanks, Jeff, and we'll have a bit of a break. Huh? You know, it's quite confusing, the cultural heritage laws in this country, and that is of extreme concern to our people across this country. And, you know, not only the Japarong trees, there's Duke and Gorge, and there are a number of other sacred areas of extreme significance to our peoples across the country that are being, you know, because of the cultural heritage laws that are in place are, you know, not actually protecting our heritage at all. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. 3CR. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program, and uh, we've been talking about all the money that the, uh, the private schools are splashing around. Well, how do they get this money? They play games uh, with uh, money that's meant for disadvantaged students. And uh, the private schools have won millions in the disability, disability funding stakes. And the way they do it, uh, we're going to find out now from Dale. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. So I've got an article here where private schools win millions in disability funding. Uh, disabled students in Australian private schools will receive millions of dollars more in specialist support from governments over the next few years, while their peers in the public education system are denied $600 million due to a cruel quirk baked into education funding agreements. 
as Labor's Jason Clare prepares to chair his first education minister's meeting this Friday, pressure is building on the new federal government to renegotiate the agreements that will ensure almost 400,000 disabled students currently at a loss in the state system are given the money to which they are entitled. The funding agreements the funding arrangements are an amalgam of Julia Gillard's Gonski reform, a Labor promise that no school would lose a dollar, and coalition amendments and policy bolt-ons designed to placate an increasingly hostile Catholic and independent school sector. The key issue is that the previous coalition government introduced a cap in its share of funding for public schools, setting it at 20% of overall funding down from 25% historically. But there's no requirement for state governments or territory governments to lift their budget share above the original 75%. So last year, every public school in every state and territory except the ACT received between 80.3 and 93.7% of the baseline school resourcing standard, the SRS, the very minimum which was set at $12,099 per primary school student and $15,204 for secondary pupils. Meanwhile, both Commonwealth and state governments collectively funded many Catholic and independent schools to more than 100% of the SRS, with payments increasing for the rest of this decade. At present, there's no plan to increase the funding for state schools to bring them to the same benchmark. This has important implications for disabled students. Private schools have the staff in place to do these assessments. They're able to get students put through funded categories but public schools have great difficulty because you actually need resources to do the appropriate assessments. Under the schooling, school funding reforms, there are three funded loadings for such students rising in support from supplementary through to substantial and finally to extensive. Each of these is calculated as a percentage of the baseline SRS. Students who have a disability but officially do not require additional funding are included in a fourth category known as quality differentiated teaching practice. In plain language, this means teachers need to accommodate these students in their classrooms without any extra support. AEU Federal President Karenna Haythorpe tells the Saturday paper she believes this $0 category is an artefact of coalition education ministers, starting with Christopher Pine, who were unprepared for the dramatic rise in students classified as disabled. After a few years of collecting that data, the number of students in the system who were identified with, dis with disability were escalating very rapidly. And so the way that the Liberals dealt with this was they changed the way the funding was distributed, she said. They basically said, we understand there's a couple of hundred thousand more students in the system with huge need, but you have to cater for their needs with pretty much the same bucket of money. And we're going to do this by changing the way that the level of adjustment works. Almost 200,000 students with disabilities in the state school system are in the unfunded category. 
For those in the three categories with money attached, the loading is formulated as a percentage of the funding a school receives per student. Underfunding in the baseline measure creates underfunding of the disability loading. The opposite is true for independent Catholic schools. Overfunding there creates higher levels of funding for disabled students. Data provided to the Senate estimates and analysed by the AEU reveals that if both levels of government had properly funded the SRS last year to 100%, disabled students in public schools would have received an additional $598 million in funded support. Separate data suggests the above baseline funding provided to private schools, which excludes the lucrative school fees charged to parents, has resulted in proportionally more in disability loading being allocated to, to disabled pupils in that sector. It's not suggested that these students are in receipt of more than their share, but the unequal funding arrangements between school sectors at the benchmark level have resulted in self-perpetuating gaps in the way loadings based on disadvantage and need are applied. Department of Education, Skills and Employment Deputy Secretary Dr. Ros Baxter went so far as to volunteer information about how much better the private school sector has been at jumping through the hoops required to collect funding for disabled students. To give you an example, we did see in government schools between 2020 and 2021 a decrease of about 1.6% in student numbers. But also, just to take one of the loadings, we saw some very interesting shifts in how schools were responding to disability, Baxter told a Senate estimates hearing in April. So between 2021 2020 and 2021 in the government sector, we saw that government schools were slower to respond to some of the issues for picking up students with disability and providing certain kinds of support for students with disability. So their loading was not increasing as much during that time. Whereas for the non-government sector, we saw quite a strong response to identifying and providing the supports for students with disability. That's just an example of how one loading is quite different between the government and the non-government sector. If you look at the funding there in terms of disability, you see the non-government sector was responding in 2020 and 2021 with shifts of nine percentage points each per annum in terms of those disability loadings, whereas the government sector was much slower to respond. What Baxter identified is another hurdle in the funding process, which is harder to clear for state schools with fewer resources. In order for a student to be verified under the national, Nationally Consistent Collection of Data, the NCCD, on students with disabilities, which then qualified them for additional funding, a school must have evidence that adjustments have been provided for a minimum period of 10 weeks of school education, excluding school holiday periods, in the 12 months preceding the census day. To that end, independent schools are able to employ dedicated staff or create part-time teaching roles that focus on supporting students with disabilities and assessing them into the funded categories. Recent job, job advertisements for the Anglican School Shore, where fees for senior students are almost $40,000 a year, show the Sydney School is hiring an education services teacher with 
previous exposure to and awareness of the requirements for assessing and verifying disability support funding. Adventist Schools in Victoria advertised for a special needs coordinator at its Heritage College to work with existing specialist staff to facilitate special needs programs for students who have a disability, according to the NCCD student list, including documentation, learning programs, regulating and monitoring of student development. And it just goes on. It's a, an example of how the over-resourced private schools are able to game the system to get money that the students with disability do deserve. But unfortunately, the public school counterparts do not have the resources to employ people to get students into those funded categories. So even though the public schools are doing the heavy lifting by having more disadvantaged and disabled students than private schools, it's the private schools who access the funding more because they have the staff who are able to tick the right boxes, who know which hoops to jump through. Anyway, it's a sad situation, so we'll leave it there. Now, let's finish off with a good news story. It's over to our great state school of the week. Every week on the Docs Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the school. week. Great state schools. State, state schools. schools. School are great of the week. Schools. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's Great State School is Sunshine Primary School. Congratulations, Sunshine Primary School. Established in 1891, Sunshine Primary School is located on the corner of Hampshire and Derby Road, Sunshine, in the city of Brim Brimbank, which is west of Melbourne. Uh, their community is diverse in its socio-economic and cultural backgrounds with a growing enrolment. At Sunshine Primary School, all students are provided with opportunities to reach their personal best in a challenging and supportive learning environment. Their aim is to develop resilient and productive members of the community by valuing and catering for individual, social, cultural and academic differences. I'm going to shoot some facts and figures at you now from the My School website. This school in the Western suburb services some families with a generous income, but it is certainly much more representative of the Australian community than most private schools in the area. The school has approximately 220 students and its ICSIA value is 1,010, which is a bit above average, and 10% of its families have an income in the upper quartile of the Australian community, 27% are from the second quartile, 25% from the third quartile and 32% are from disadvantaged families. There are 54% of students from non-English backgrounds attending this school and 3% Indigenous students. The Australian government provides only $617 million and the state $2.4 million. The parents paid $31,000 in fees and raised $34,000 in 2020. The capital expenditure over the last three years is only $346,793. Oh, 
All in all, it costs only $14,880 per pupil to educate a child at this primary school. So congratulations, Sunshine Primary School. You are our great state school of the week. And unfortunately, we have run out of time. So congratulations to Sunshine. Uh, you're our great state school of the week. Thank you to Oliver and Kim and Bridget and Maddie. And thank you to Jean. And thank you to you, our listeners. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about the DOGS, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools, you can go to our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But until next week, it's bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize. Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill It's there you find listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.